Good morning, church. It's good to see you all uh, this morning. Um, you know, we've been going through a series uh, called Habits of Grace, Experiencing Christ Through uh, the Spiritual Disciplines. Pastor Brock, um, he's on vacation right now. He's done all of the heavy lifting and designing and crafting uh, this series, but then also making sure that we're not just talking about spiritual disciplines, but they're we're actually doing them, and he's been uh, helping all of us, I think, as a church to experience Christ through spiritual disciplines. This morning, we're talking about experiencing Christ through serving. Now, here's the thing. Most people, when they look for a church, most or a lot of them ask the wrong question. They'll ask questions if they're looking for a church and they see a specific one they, they want to try out or whatever. They'll, they'll, they'll ask questions like, how many people does it have? Or what kind of facility is it? Or is, is the band cool? Do, do they play the style of music that I like? Is the preacher smart and funny? Will my kids get a free Happy Meal? Will the church disciple my children for me. But the most important question to ask about a church is why is it there? Why does that church exist? And we talk about regularly about why we are here. And we say on a regular basis that we are here to glorify God as we lead people to and through a life-changing relationship with Jesus and his family. In other words, ultimately, we are here to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, as a community, and to love God, our triune God, first and foremost, above all else, above everything else, and therefore, to love what God loves, to love who God loves, to love our neighbors. So let me ask you, if we really got this as a church, if we loved God and loved who God loves, if we truly loved our neighbors, what could our ministry look like? Well, that's what the Good Samaritan is all about. Jesus starts his story by saying, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, this road from Jerusalem to Jericho, it was dangerous. In fact, the locals called it the bloody way. It cut through these steep, rocky hills that were filled with caves, and these caves were perfect for thieves to hide and then strike and then escape. There were no streetlights, there were no cops, there were no cell phones. And Jesus tells us about a traveler who got beat up and robbed, and Jesus said, he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. And then Jesus goes on to say that a, a priest and a Levite, a couple of religious guys, come walking by. They see this guy in a bloody pile. And Jesus says that they passed by on the other side. How could these guys do that? Just leave him to die like that. Well, here's what I think. If, if we were in that situation, in the notorious, you know, bloody way, in the dark, and, and you saw a man lying there on the ground all bloody and groaning with an empty wallet next to his head, you might be thinking, you know what, whoever did this could get me next. You might get out of there too. But also it says that they went across the other side, and so that kind of hints that these religious guys used religious excuses not to help him. 
The Levitical law, which they would have been very familiar with, said that anyone touching a dead body was ceremonially unclean. They would be excluded from worship ceremonies for seven days. And so possibly they were thinking he might be dead or about to die, and I can't let him get in the way of my higher calling. In the name of religion, they ignored the clear teaching of Scripture from Leviticus 19, to have mercy on even strangers in need. They disregarded God's call on their life in the name of God's call on their life. Finally, a Samaritan shows up. This Samaritan faces the same danger. Beyond that, Samaritans and Jews were bitter enemies. Rather than stepping over him or around him, he might be inclined to step on him. But in verse 33, Jesus says, And when the Samaritan saw him, he had compassion. It was compassion that led him to minister to his enemy's needs. Then what does Jesus say? What what does your king say next? He says, you go and do likewise. King Jesus, who has the authority to command us, says that the model for your life and for our church is the good Samaritan who risked his safety, who who destroyed his schedule, who became dirty and bloody, who became sacrificially generous, personally involved to serve somebody in need. A stranger, an enemy. Someone of a different race, a different culture, a different social class. Now this parable raises some questions, doesn't it? We're going to focus on three if you're following along in your notes. The first one is this. Why? The first is a why question. Why are we to love and serve our neighbors? Well, because Jesus teaches that it is at the heart of what it means to have a relationship with God. Jesus tells this parable uh, to answer this lawyer's question. And the question that the, the lawyer asks is, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? So, time out. Is Jesus saying that only social workers go to heaven? No. Aren't we saved by grace through faith in Christ? Yes. Then what's Jesus saying? Well, let me point out a couple of things. First of all, loving your neighbor is not the basis for your salvation. Let me say that again. Loving your neighbor is not the basis for your salvation. And what was happening here in the story is that this lawyer was trying to set Jesus up. He was trying to trap Jesus into saying something negative about the law. But Jesus wrote the law. So motivated by love, Jesus sets his own trap and he asks the lawyer to summarize the law and and the lawyer summarizes it this way. I think we have it up here. The next slide, there we go. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and what? Your neighbor as yourself. Your neighbor as yourself. Meet the needs of others. 
just as eagerly, just as joyfully as you meet your own needs. And what does Jesus say? You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. It sounds like he's saying that you can inherit eternal life through good deeds. But that's not what he's saying. Jesus is turning the tables on the lawyer here. He is saying, sure, sure, yeah, you can inherit eternal life if you obey the law perfectly your whole life from birth till death with all of the right motives. But look at the law. You haven't kept the law perfectly and you can't, I mean, do it with a pure heart because sinful motives will be mixed into all that. What Jesus is trying to do here, what his goal is, is, is to convince the lawyer that he cannot be right with God through his own moral effort. So, how should have this lawyer responded to Jesus? After hearing Jesus, what he said, I mean, he should have asked, well, then how can anyone... How can anyone be right with God? And then Jesus would have explained that it's only through his mercy. <laughs> but the lawyer, feeling cornered, tries to sneak out of Jesus' trap by, ask, by deflecting and by saying, well, who really is my neighbor? Let's be reasonable. What this guy is doing here is he's trying to water down God's law. He's trying to lower the bar to make it more doable. This is what religious people do all the time. Jesus shares this parable to show that loving our neighbor is far beyond anything that you and I can achieve on our own. Jesus says, and he's messing with, he's messing with this guy's head right here. He's trying to kind of shake them up, but he's also trying to kind of shake things up for us as well because he says, imagine a Samaritan helping a Jew. In other words, I think in our day and age, imagine a Palestinian rescuing an Israeli soldier or imagine an undocumented immigrant stopping to help an injured border patrol. Now, if those examples frustrates you, it means you're starting to understand what Jesus is trying to do. And we gotta get this. We gotta, we gotta sit with this as uncomfortable as it might be or we'll end up thinking that we're better than we really are and then we'll totally miss what we need. Jesus tells this parable to humble us to humble us with the love that God requires so that we will willingly receive the love that God offers. He humbles us so that we will see we are desperate for his mercy. We are desperate for his grace. We are desperate for his love. But if you get distracted by saying, what do you mean a Samaritan helps a Jew? What do you mean Palestinian helping an Israeli soldier? What are you getting at? Are you, are you getting political on undocumented immigrants stopping and helping the border patrol? That's deflection. You gotta sit with this. Because Jesus wants to bring us to a point of seeing that we are desperate. We can't love like this. We're not inclined to love like this. We're inclined to justify why we don't love like this. Now, 
Let me reiterate something in case you got distracted. Loving your neighbor is not the basis for your salvation, okay? Loving your neighbor is the inevitable evidence of your salvation. Here's, here's how this works. Here's how God set it up. If you know God's love, you will show God's love. The other side of the coin is if you do not show God's love, it means that you don't know God's love or don't value God's love or don't cherish God's love. If you know God's love, you'll show God's love. It is the natural, the logical, the obedient, the biblical, the God-glorifying result of knowing God's love. In Matthew 25, Jesus is teaching and says that on judgment day, the Lord will distinguish between those with true faith and those with counterfeit faith by how? Examining the fruit. Specifically, examining, and he lists it off, your love for the poor, love for the homeless, love for the sick, love for prisoners. And then King Jesus goes on to say, speaking about himself, the king will reply, I tell you the truth, and whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. So, imagine a wealthy older woman with no heirs, except a nephew who is kind to her. And she, she wonders if this nephew of hers is just being kind to her uh, just for his own interests because, you know, he wants to inherit everything after she dies, right? And so she's wondering about his heart. So she dresses up as a homeless person and settles in on his nephew's porch. And in the morning, as he's walking out to work, he sees her, cusses her out, threatens to call the cops, and runs her off. And now she knows his true character and in a way, Jesus is saying, I'm the homeless person on your porch. How you treat her tells me what your heart is really like. Let's move to the next question. It's a good question. Who is our neighbor? Who are our neighbors? Here's the short answer. Our neighbors are anyone in need. Now, here's the thing. Most people agree that we're supposed to help people in need, that we're supposed to care for them, love them, serve them. This lawyer believed that, but he still wonders, how can I make what God requires of me more reasonable, more doable? You know, with these religious dudes, the priests and the Levite, Jesus exposes how we try to limit God's command for us to love our neighbor. We try to limit it. It's a very common religious thing to do. With the Samaritan in the story, Jesus is trying to show us that our neighbor is anyone who is in need, even an enemy. Amen? Yes, even our enemy. We are inclined to limit God's command to love our neighbor. We do this more than we realize, and we're blind to it in ourselves. And so we need people to kind of help us see our blind spots. That's why community is so important. Because otherwise, our, our, our justification spins out of control. And, and, and we think things like, sure, you know, we should help people in need. But, you know, where does it end? It's a slippery slope. 
Or, you don't, you don't mean we should be inconvenienced to help just anyone. Charity begins at home, right? Or not everyone has to get involved in helping people in need. It's not my gift, so I think somebody else will do it. Or aren't these poor people irresponsible? God helps those who help themselves. They should be more like me. You know, I was listening, I was listening to the radio every now and then. I, I, I try to listen to some talk radio, but I only have so much patience. And, um, you know, in the news lately, uh, it's been talking about an infestation of rats in California, especially San Francisco, L.A., and San Diego, right? Talking about the problem. I heard a, a, a radio show, talk show host use the same language, infestation, to talk about the homeless. And so many Christians get discipled by these talk show hosts day in and day out. And they're not on guard against that kind of talk. We, we are inclined to limit God's command to love our neighbor. So who is your neighbor personally? Where has God placed you? Maybe it's the guy next door who's always complaining. Maybe it's the single mom who's overwhelmed. Maybe the, three man, the, the, the man three doors down dying with dementia. The guy at school or work that everybody makes fun of. It's, it's all the people in your neighborhood that you don't even talk to. The first step in loving them is to get to know them. Now what about us as a church? As a church in this city, who is our neighbor? Our neighbors are the homeless who live under our, our bridges or in camps by Escondido Creek? How can we be a loving neighbor and serve them in the name of Christ? Or single moms who've been rejected by their boyfriend or husband and, and fear the judgmentalism and self-righteousness of, of religious people. How can we be a loving neighbor to serve them and their kids in the name of Christ? Or the sex workers in our city who are, in many cases, teenager victims of sex trafficking. How can we be a loving neighbor and serve them in the name of Christ? Or the working poor who barely make ends meet with two full, you know, in time, two parents with, with uh, full income, excuse me, full-time jobs uh, just to get enough income uh, to pay the rent. I mean, how can we be a loving neighbor and serve them in the name of Christ? I mean, you hear all of this and it's easy to get overwhelmed, isn't it? And so we shrug our shoulders and say, I don't know, and do nothing. But King Jesus gave us a command. And our response is not to just shrug our shoulders and say, I don't know what to do and do nothing. So this leads to our last question. It's an important question. It's the how question. How can we love and serve our neighbors? How can we be a church that loves and serves our neighbors? Well, first of all, we can't. I mean, left to ourselves, on our own, we can't, and I'll explain. This lawyer in this parable is a moralist. He thinks that he can, etern he can earn eternal life through his moral efforts. So Jesus gives him a picture of the love the, that God's law requires, a self-sacrificing love so lofty that none of us can reach it. Jesus' goal is to show this lawyer uh, who believed he was spiritually rich that on his own he is spiritually broke. 
And this is not an isolated theme in the, in the Bible. Isaiah says, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous acts are like what? Filthy rags. So think of the dirtiest, most frail, wasted, homeless person wandering the streets in rags, not much of a mind left maybe, no resource, no resources, nothing that anyone would, would value. And Isaiah says, in light of God's holiness next to God, that's what we all are. And if that offends you, first realize this is what God says. This is not Pastor Matt making stuff up. God says the only way to get eternal life is by realizing that we're spiritually broke on our own. And that sounds negative, but look what Jesus has to say about it. He says, and read this with me together right now. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To get eternal life, we must let go of our moralistic, self-righteous, middle-class spirit and become poor in spirit, regardless of your social status or, or your income. We're called to be poor in spirit. Why? Because it's the only way that we can receive God's mercy. That's it. And what is God's mercy? God's mercy is this. Even though on our own we are spiritually broke, God provided spiritual riches for us. In Christ, God became poor so that his immeasurable spiritual riches, his holiness, his righteousness could be given to those who admit that they can't do it on their own. And then simply put their faith in Jesus. The Apostle Paul says, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then he puts it in economic terms and he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Do you see how Jesus is shaking it up? <laughs> He's willing to make us a little bit uncomfortable as we kind of evaluate our own hearts and our own religious practices and our own religious ways of thinking. Let me ask you something. As you've heard this, if you've been a Christian for a while and you've heard this story off and on, I mean, who do you most identify in this parable? If you understand the righteousness that God's law requires, you will see that you are not the good Samaritan. And you're not necessarily the uncaring priest and Levi who walk on by. The truth is, spiritually speaking, on your own, you are the beaten and broken traveler kicked to the curb, lying in your own blood, totally helpless, on our own, that is who we are. How in the world could we ever look down on anybody else if we grasped the reality of this? So apart from God, that's the bad news. But there's good news. You know what the good news is? There really is a good 
Samaritan. There really is a true neighbor. There really is one who did not pass by but had compassion on you and me. And he not only risked his life, he willingly gave up his life for you. On the cross, Jesus paid the price to rescue you from death. He got what we deserve, judgment, so that you could get what he deserves, which is his inheritance of eternal life with God forever. So the gospel is this. We can't, but Jesus did. And he did it for you. And that is the gospel that changes you. And when you get it and you see your need for the Good Samaritan, that changes your heart, it changes your life, it changes your priorities, it changes the way that you live, it changes the way that you look at yourself, it changes the way that you look at other people, and then you start living out the good news of Christ in word and deed. And then you become more like the Good Samaritan. Do you see how that works? So I plead with you this morning, Put your faith in Jesus who lived for you and died for you and rose again for you and rules over you as your king. Trust him. Trust him to be both your savior and your king. Whether you need to renew your faith or put your faith in him for the first time, my encouragement is for you to do that today. Do that this morning and then you become more like Jesus, your good Samaritan. That is the most important application because it is application of the gospel. Most people limit application to steps that you can follow or whatever. Uh, Those can be helpful and wise. But the most important application is the application of the gospel. And that's what we just walked through right here. Now this is the fruit of the gospel. I'll give you a little bit more application what this looks like lived out. First, when you believe the gospel, if you believe the gospel, you will identify with those in need. When you see the poor, you see the homeless, you know that you're looking in a mirror. You see their dirty, tattered clothes, and you think, you know what, all of my righteousness is a filthy rag, but in Christ, we both can be clothed in his righteousness. You don't look down on them, you respect them, and instead of of serving them with an attitude of superiority, you see them as people from whom you have much to learn. The gospel totally changes your attitude. You see that? Secondly, when you believe the gospel, if you believe the gospel, you will have compassion on those in need. This this Samaritan right now, he didn't have a good reason according to the world to show mercy. No one expected him to stop, but he does. Why? He was moved by compassion. Moralists love their neighbors simply to feel better about themselves. But the only true and enduring motivation for loving your neighbor is experiencing God's grace in the gospel for you. When that happens, then guess what? You won't get uptight about who deserves what. God, Thank God he wasn't uptight with me whether or not I deserved his grace and his mercy and his compassion and the riches of Christ. When you know that you're a sinner saved by grace alone, you will have compassion on the outcasts. Third, when you believe the gospel, if you believe the gospel, you will be generous to those in need. If you believe the gospel, it leads to a life of generosity and sacrifice and mercy. You become content and radically generous, 
regardless of how much you have or don't have. Some of the most generous people I know have next to nothing or nothing. Why? Because they know their treasure is in heaven. Because they know that Jesus is enough. I got to tell you, I'm so encouraged by those of you who are inclined to help people in need. Especially those of you who have next to nothing or nothing. But then you trust God to, you know, I don't have anything, God, but I trust you. Show me how I can be generous. And then God provides. He provides the resources for you. In one way or another. And you get personally involved. Or you open your home. Or your dinner table. When the gospel comes into your life and you believe it, you become incredibly content in Christ. You become radically generous because of Christ's generosity to you. You become genuinely humble because of God's holiness. And you experience Christ as you serve your neighbor in light of the gospel. Look, my desire for you Everybody preaching through this series with you, the, the, the preaching team, we want all of us, we want all of you to experience Christ through the spiritual disciplines. And in light of this morning's message, we want you to experience Christ through serving. So here's what I want you to do. And there are many ways to serve your neighbor in response to who Jesus is and what he's done for you but we've given you some suggestions. Most of you, if you have a bulletin, I want you to find your, your handout, and I'll, you'll see the outline with about a billion blanks in it. And then on the back side, there are some suggestions for ways that you can help. The, uh, uh, you know, just suggestions for you to experience Christ through serving in response to who Christ is and, and what he has done. And I want you to pick one or at least one item, maybe more, and then commit to it. And part in there, there are instructions on how you can talk to Charity or Pastor Brock or fill out your name and number on a connection card and drop it in the box in the back. This is just an opportunity that we're providing for you on a silver platter to experience Christ through serving. You don't have to do that. I'm just sharing some opportunities with you. We exist to lead people to and through a life-changing relationship with Jesus and his family, to love and serve our neighbors in both word and deed for the glory of God, not as a way of earning eternal life, but as a way of thanking God for his gift of eternal life to us through Jesus. This leads us to become more and more of a church that radically loves and serves our neighbors in the name of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Would you bow your heads with me?